and a little bit of paranoia. Welcome to the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. Welcome, folks, to tonight's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and I'm just checking to make sure we actually have sound. We do! Good! I think we do. Anyway, um, yeah, I'm joined tonight by our two usual co-hosts. Say hi, Mark. Hi, Jason. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jason. Just, yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> anyway, tonight, as far as I know, we have no emergencies that will require us to either cancel or shorten the show. Maybe I shouldn't say that because now something's going to happen. The house is going to catch fire. Something like that. Um, but, um, yeah, we can actually have a full show for a change. And it's going to be awesome. Well, the very the very definition of an emergency is something that can pop unexpectedly. So, you yeah. know, we have the Coast Guard standing by because they're always ready. They're always ready. That was our that was our pre-show discussion about the Coast Guard. Because Mark's from New Jersey. Apparently, always that's ready. a thing that you have to know about in New Jersey. Anyway. You don't have to. <laughs> Jer- Jersey Shore, though. I mean, okay. spent a lot of time on the ocean growing up. Okay, cool. So, uh, tonight, um, we're going to go back to a little bit of basics. Uh, I guess it's kind of basics. It's maybe more advanced than, like, your average uh, brand new newbie in the industry might uh, might be diving into. But we're going to talk about some basics of the cloud. And when I say the cloud, I just mean, like, public cloud providers. We're, or we're, we're going to go into some terminology. We're going to define a few things. We're going to talk about some technologies that... You're going to hear about if you're starting a journey into whether it's a public cloud or a private cloud or whatever, right? So, so um, are, are you saying to break break out the Uggs and the uh, you know Starbucks because you're basic? Is that <laughs> sure. What you're saying? Yeah. Let's let's go with that. Let's go with the that. flat the flat white. <laughs> you're basic. So uh, I've got a huge list of various terms, some of which are going to sound very familiar to folks that are already used to on-prem data centers. Um, and some of them are going to be very cloud-specific, right? I, I'm trying not to go into anything that is specific to a certain cloud provider, though, right? So these are going to be all terms you're going to hear in one way or another across whether it's AWS or Azure or I assume GCP, though I've absolutely never used GCP. Have either of you used Wait, GCP? Wh- what was that second cloud provider? Azure. 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 Okay. <laughs> here we, here we I, go with Mark making fun of how I say things again. I, it's kind of a thing. Because he's from Jersey. Say things weird in Jersey, and everyone else has to say I've the used, same way. They used, get made fun of. Yep, damn straight. <laughs> I've used the first two. I've never directly used uh, Google Cloud, although I've certainly consumed stuff that I knew was on Google Cloud, such yeah. as the uh, Holiday Hack. Yeah, that's right. That's that's on GCP. Uh, Jason, See, have you I used just GCP? A plug. I don't think you have either. Have you? Yeah, I've sort of used GCP, um, not much. It was, it was it was many many years ago, and I've I've tried to burn those uh, those brain cells out of my head. Okay, um, I mean, I guess the only thing I'm curious about is how similar is it from a technology standpoint, or I should say from an end user technology or interface standpoint, to the other cloud providers like AWS and Azure. Um, all three of them are vastly different. So, I mean, yeah. GCP, from what I remember, was was incredibly different from what uh, AWS and Azure had at the time. Um, 
AWS basically stayed the same. Azure has gotten slightly better, um, but not much. And I haven't touched, like I said, I haven't touched GCP in years, so I'm, I'm not, honestly not sure. Man, your voice is getting worse. <laughs> it's like his equipment caught the COVID. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was basically the different types of quote-unquote clouds, right? Usually when people talk about the cloud, they're talking about a public cloud provider like AWS, for example. Um, but there's other ways that the cloud, quote-unquote, is defined. There's private cloud, which we could probably go on for hours about what exactly that means. But basically, a private cloud is a thing that's running in your data center, um, but it has the features of a cloud, right? So when I say features of a cloud, oh, Jason's back. Does it work now? You sound better. All right. <laughs> so anyway, what I mean by features of a cloud is it's got like a self-service portal. It has the ability to uh, dynamically assign things. It has the ability to like software-defined networking and whatnot. Um, products like OpenStack, I think VMware might have a competitor as well. They're, they're what you'd consider a private cloud, right? It's hardware that you run in your data center, but it's not just your VMware cluster, Right? It's not just, I've got a highly available VM cluster, therefore I have a private cloud, or I have physical machines that I manage myself. That's not a private cloud. The distinction there is that self-service portal, the ability for uh, possibly an end user or an application owner to log into a portal, define themselves a system, attach networking, right? And there's no sysadmin racking and stacking to make that happen, right? Did I cover it well enough, Mark? I know you had feelings here. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think it can be challenging to define what a cloud really is, right? Because for a lot of us in IT, let's let's be honest, and I and I tend to be one of the more cynical IT guys. No. For many years, cloud has been almost an overused buzzword. Um, yeah, I'll agree. And with when that. people talk about having when people talk about having their data in the cloud right now. That's even a little different than than a cloud provider. My data in the cloud has become the common terminology for I have crap that's accessible via the public internet on some yeah. probably third party storage, right? Yep. yep. And that and that third party storage is most likely running on a public cloud or a group of public clouds somewhere, which is doing the actual backend work, right? Yeah, so nowadays, right, it's like I take a picture on my phone and it uploads to some third party. Your average end user says, oh, it's in the cloud. I mean, they're yeah. probably right. It's probably on a cloud provider. It probably is. But they have but, no real so, concept of what that means. Yeah, so to me, to me, when, when people are talking about a cloud, whether it's a private cloud, public cloud, or this hybrid cloud, which is like a Red Hat buzzword in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> um, it It... To me, it, you've, you've sort of insinuated it. It's about having a set of features and technologies. And yeah. a lot of that, to me, has always been about the dynamic resource allocation and deallocation. Right. When I was at Merck, I actually played with a, a product that you could have empty servers sitting in a rack powered off. Mm -hmm. And this we were going to use this for high for HPC stuff. You, you could you could have a job running and if it hits certain thresholds 
the controller would actually bring up it would pixie boot a pizza box uh-huh uh and 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 across the network load a linux image onto it which was pre-configured for that application and you know, the rack would slowly light up as the load got higher and higher yep and then when it was done its work the systems would deallocate and you could have different use cases for each piece of physical hardware yep and that's and, and, and that's sort of exactly the selling point of OpenStack, right? Because it has that automation, it's able to spin up hardware right. or virtual this, machines in in an automated way, like yeah. That. So so that that automated that audit some so some level of automated provisioning. Um, we talk about software defined a lot, mm-hmm. where your or the infrastructure is code, mm-hmm. where you basically have a recipe. And say, this is what I want my data center or this particular application to look like, you know, the, the stack that's running it. And, and you, can, you can produce that by running co- commands. So you've got, you've got flexible, dynamic, what appears to be hardware. And we could talk more about what it really is later, right? Along with the idea of... Most of the time, you know, you set up you set up a, a, a portal. It can be a web portal where a user's clicking, or it could be it could be some form of automation mm-hmm. that gets fired off by by a deployment job. Yep, and and that actually makes calls that do the provisioning. But in all cases like that, there is some API application program interface for those of you who are really new usually done through some sort of, of web language and those calls are sent and, and, and the uh, resources on the cloud are deployed that way. Right. So I think that type of functionality has become something that's really part of when we say a cloud, we expect the ability to automate via API calls. Right. Regardless of what that might look like as an interface yep. to the end yep. user. Yeah, that is that is key. That automation is definitely uh, a key piece of it. So would would OpenShift qualify as a cloud? Um maybe. Maybe. Open and I say maybe shift, I would say Because we, we have that question in chat right now. Yeah, I see it on the on the YouTube chat. So um yeah, so oh, oh. OpenShift can qualify as a type of cloud service, I believe. And we're going to talk about the type that it is in actually just a moment, pretty much as soon as we get through the different types of clouds. We're going to talk about well, the different as-a-services. Sorry. Wasn't, wasn't Rackspace running OpenShift? Or not OpenStack. OpenShift. They were running OpenStack. Yeah, Rackspace helped, um, helped develop OpenStack. Okay, yeah. O- o- OpenShift would be a... a Platform as a service, as opposed to yep. a full, a full blown yeah, everything. Yeah. So let's let's yeah. get through the different types of cloud first. Then we're going to actually go right into the different types of services you can consume in a cloud, right? So we talked about private. Cloud. Love the question, though, Jeremy. Thanks yep. for it. Yep. Public cloud is kind of the same thing, except in someone else's data center. <laughs> Usually, and not not just like the guy next door, but a a a place where you can simply subscribe to a service 
and then you can utilize their cloud services. That's a public cloud, right? It's, it's open to the public. As long as you've got a credit card that you can just kind of pop in and go, hey, I need, you know, uh, I need compute or I need this or I need that and turn it on and spin it up or make those API calls like Mark was talking about. That's a public cloud, right? It's not in your private data center. It's in a public data center somewhere else that other people can use. Not public, like people can walk into it but public, like other people can log in and provision resources from it as well. And then there's this foggier definition of a hybrid cloud. And Mark, you hinted at this earlier. Red Hat pushes this a lot, um, but it is, it is something that's worth talking about, right? So a hybrid cloud is this concept where you have a private cloud and a public cloud, both at your disposal, and your workloads are able to be spun up on both either seamlessly. And, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing or that it's not real. Right. But, In well, fact, it is it is the business reality for a lot of companies today. The right. idea that some stuff, some stuff they want tighter control over in their own data centers for whatever right. reason, whether it right. be security, whether it be they they want to make sure they've got primo hardware versus stuff that is on a public cloud because Public clouds, you tend to end up, it's like a public swimming pool, right? It, yeah. Owning your own swimming pool is something I never want to do again because it's a money sink. It's it a is. lot of work. <laughs> and, and it's nice, right? Because you've got your own swimming pool, but you still got to maintain it and whatever. A public pool... If it's a decent public pool, fine, but sometimes they're not so great. Yeah. And that's sometimes what you deal with the public cloud. Right. You, you're dealing with even, you know, and, the, and you know, one of the most famous is Amazon. Well, Amazon, quite frankly, a lot of the, unless you're paying extra money, you're running on garbage hardware. Mm -hmm. You're running on, you know, white box, low cost, uh, commodity disposable hardware. Right. Which means that, things can just stop working. Now, most cloud services have the, the ability for things to be brought back up automatically, but that can be an interruption of service. So you have to engineer your stuff to be able to handle a, a crappy white box falling over. Yeah, so in, in my mind, the the real dream of public or of hybrid cloud has always been the workload that can burst into a public cloud when necessary, but primarily runs on a private cloud, right? And I've seen theoretical papers on how to do that. I've, I've heard of technologies that can make it happen. I don't know if I've ever actually seen somebody doing this. I'm sure somebody is. I'm sure there's people out there doing it. I haven't seen it myself. But to use your pool analogy, it would be like you have your own private pool and next door to you is a public pool. And when you have too many people for your private pool, you open up a gate that goes to the public pool and people go from your backyard into the public pool, <laughs> right? So, you know, you've got an application running on your private cloud. Somehow the data is accessible in the public cloud as well. The application can be spun up in the public cloud very quickly and easily. And you have a load balancer or something in front of it so that when requests start coming in, you can route them to your public cloud provider as well, right? That's like the dream. Uh, again, I don't see that in use that often, but it's it's a neat idea. I think it's a neat idea. Realistically, what people talk about when they talk about hybrid cloud is more like they have their workloads spread out across private and public uh, resources, right? So they don't have a yeah. data center that has all their stuff in it. They don't have six data centers that have all their stuff in it. 
they have data centers and public cloud providers that they, they utilize sort of in tandem to uh, uh, to get their services up and running, to make them highly available or whatever it is they need to do. It's funny, you're both looking the same direction as though there's a bird flying or something that you're both looking at. <laughs> Maybe there is. That's funny. You can both yeah. got distracted by the same thing in separate zip codes. Uh, anyway, all right. So, so those, worlds. those are kind of the basics, right? Private cloud, private cloud, public cloud, and hybrid cloud, right? So uh, any of the things we're about to talk about should be applicable to any of those three clouds, quote unquote clouds, right? Uh, and this is kind of that distinction where private cloud isn't just virtualization or hardware in your data center, right? Because it can't do some of the things we're about to talk about. I think that's kind of the key, right? The feature set is what gives you a cloud versus just hardware in your data center. So we're going to talk about a bunch of terms coming up. And basically each one of these, I think we would just define and talk about a little bit about what they do. And then we'll move on to the next, right? So first mm -hmm. I thought we'd talk about different types of services, right? And I don't mean like this is email, this is DNS, whatever. I mean uh, sort of the methodology or I guess the, the level of control you might get over certain types of services. And there's three major ones that came to mind when I started writing this. You guys can fill in if you think there's more that we need to talk about. And they kind of go up the stack as you're going, right? So imagine you have full control of a piece of hardware, right? That's privately owned, right? You get full control of the entire stack. Um, infrastructure as a service is one layer up, right? So imagine that you have your virtualization platform and you have zero control over the virtualization layer, but you have complete control over the VM that's running in it. That's kind of like infrastructure as a service, right? Infrastructure as a ogres service Ogres have is, layers. Ogres have layers. Uh, you, so Amazon EC2, for example. Uh, OpenStack primarily is an infrastructure as a service. Um, I don't know what Azure calls it, where you can spin up a machine and run an instance on Azure. I don't know what they label that particular product as. But... You know, you say, I would like a Linux machine, and they give you a virtual machine that runs Linux, and you have complete control over that box, right? And then you put whatever you want on top of that. It's not usually the most cost-effective way to utilize a cloud provider because uh, you lose some of the uh, manageability, perhaps, that your cloud provider likes to leverage to make it as cheap as possible. You're running a virtual machine. They don't have any control over what you're doing inside of it. Um, all they have to do is give you the resources, right? So that's infrastructure as a service. Then there's and and, and, and go ahead before you go on. I think it's important to note that like so for infrastructure as a service, it's it's more than just instances like like compute machines. I mean, it, you're you're building networks. Um, yeah. There's lot like if you look at AWS infrastructure. Like, yeah. Infrastructure as a service like can be anything from storage pools. A, you know, running a machine, storing things. Um, talking to satellites, doing game development, like all, all of that stuff uh, is all infrastructure as a service um, on some of the platforms. Not everybody supports everything. Um, and as right. far as running a machine and you say, I want to you know, spin up a Linux machine, you can replace Linux with virtually anything. Oh, yeah. Um, provided that you, you can, if you can provide an image of whatever software you want to run or whatever operating system you want to run, so there are, there are, you know, platforms like Linux, Windows, uh, Mac OS, et cetera. There are also things like routers, 
um, switches, uh, other other such, you know, VPNs, etc. Right. So by infrastructure as a service, it's basically like a virtualized data center is what you might want to say, right? You can run whatever you want on there. You can configure the networking within reason, however you want. You can set up routes. You can set up IP spaces. You can set up load balancers. That's all infrastructure. But none of it is, well, I shouldn't say none of it's physical. As far as you're concerned, it's all software. It's all defined by, you know, your input and it's created, right? So one step up from that would be platform as a service. And this is a little gray, right, where you start talking about infrastructure versus platform. Platform is I have code that I want to run or I have an application that I need to deploy on a thing. Um, the platform that you run it on would be something like maybe a container, right? Um, and there's probably other ways to get this done that would also qualify as platform as a service. But platform is more like I have requirements for a piece of software, give me a thing that meets those requirements. I don't care what's underneath it. I don't care if it's Linux. I don't care if it's Windows. I don't care if it's Mac OS or OS2 Warp, right? As long as it runs, Python has the libraries I need and my application will run on it, I've got a platform to run my application on, right? Containers are a really good example of this because when a container is defined, it says, you know, the container has this certain, sub, this certain set of features and your application utilizes the features. You don't really care what's beneath the container. You don't care what's hosting the container. You may not even care what the container was based on as long as it has all the feature set that you need. What you lose with that is control over, you know, that fine grain control you might get over the network and over the operating system and maybe you don't care, right? Right, and, and to Jeremy's question, this is where OpenShift counts in as platform as a service. Right. And and actually, I would I would argue that platform as a service there's a fine line between this one and the next one up. But platform as a service is stuff like OpenShift, which is a container orchestration platform. Things like, uh, you know, Java, middleware. Uh, like a Java application needs to, you, you, there's, there's enterprise grade uh, middleware packages that let you t run JVMs on top of them. So that would be that that would be a platform as a service. Where again, you don't care about the underlying operating system. You're you're higher up than that. Right. You you need to you, you need to run you need to run an application that requires again, we a lot of us in enterprise IT would consider this middleware. And yeah, in some ways, you know, OpenShift is kind of like yeah. middleware. So what you what you care about is, you know, do I have PHP at a certain version? Do I have Java at a certain version? Do I have Python at a certain version? Do you, I don't know, whatever the latest, greatest programming languages are that people are using for development in these, in these things. Yeah. Do I have MySQL and can I make it work, right? Uh, those are things that would, would qualify as platform as a service. I don't care if underneath is Ubuntu, Red Hat, Debian, Microsoft Windows, whatever, right? I need a thing that runs this particular thing that I need to make my application work, right? That's platform as a service. And then the next level up is software as a service. And Mark was, was suggesting that there's a fine line here. I think it's a pretty distinct line, to be honest. Um, if wow. you have no control over the code or the application that's running, right? You subscribe to a service like Office 365, uh, Google Docs, right? Google Drive, Gmail, right? 
Uh, these are things that I would consider software as a service. You pay a cloud provider or a provider in general, they provide you this service in a way that is self-provisionable, right? So, you know, I've got an ISP, my ISP gives me email. I don't know if that email application would still be software as a service. I guess it kind of qualifies, but in my mind, it needs to be something that's self-provisionable, right? Gmail, if you well, if you register a domain with Google, you can say, give me an email domain, and boom, you've got your own domain hosted on Gmail, right? Well, and so that's where, and, and the line there is, you could make an argument to me that OpenShift is software as a service, because it's a very large application co comprised of components that lets you run containers. Uh, just I like guess, and, if you really want to stretch it and, like that. <laughs> and, and and if you're going to say, well, no, it's a it's a platform as a service, then I would say, well, then Google Sheets is a platform as a service because you can write, you know, ridiculous programming stuff around <laughs> sheets and, and Google Docs and stuff. And Google Docs. <laughs> there are, there's a, I'll tell you, we've no, got I, a huge number. It, right? yeah. yeah. So, so that's why you can see you sometimes. Yeah. I, and I, I, but I, to put this to rest, I agree with, I agree with your general distinction. Yeah. There. I think software as a service is yeah. The, the difference is that platform as a service will let you run whatever your arbitrary code is to run an application, right? You can't run an application from within your tricky Excel spreadsheet, right? I guess maybe mm. you could if you're really good at it. But it's, not what, it's, Robinson, it's not what it's dude. designed to do, right? Depends on the application. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think, and you're right, you know, there's gray areas in all these things. But I think that by design, right, platform as a service is meant to let you run code Software as a service is meant to give you something that's already pre-built. All I'm saying is that there are places in between yeah. where it can sometimes be hard to say where does this so fit look at, as um, part of the infrastructure or part of the platform or part of the software as a service. Most things are fairly easy to figure out, but there are some things yeah. that, that live in the gray. Like ServiceNow, for example. You, you ever use ServiceNow? I know you've probably heard of it. You've both probably heard of it. Not. ServiceNow well, yeah. is like, it's almost like platform as a service, but it's also almost like software as a service. When you get ServiceNow and you, you try to set it up, it's not just like click, 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 and you have ServiceNow. It's, okay, you've got ServiceNow. Okay, get out a book and start reading about how to like write automations and whatnot in ServiceNow because it's not, it's not... Yeah. Plug and play, <laughs> click and run, or whatever you want to say. If you're going to run service now, you need to have people on staff who are dedicated. Oh no, the Cylon's back. Yeah, I, I hate to tell you this, Jason, but it happened again. <laughs> you're you're a smoking PSA advertisement for like when the guy puts the thing up to his throat. You don't want to run service now unless you have a dedicated staff. Also, don't smoke. It's bad for you. <laughs> All right. I guess we're just going to have to live with it. We're, we're, we're too far in. <laughs> if you have anything to say, Jason, just use sign language. We'll translate for you. <laughs> no, not that sign. All right. Uh. All right. Um, anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah, we were talking about. Oh, then there's Mark as a service, which Jason, I think, added to the. The list here so uh 
Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure what but that I, is. I don't, I don't want Jason to you press it every so often. He's going <laughs> to sound like a robot. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Now you're completely silent. Are you muted? We couldn't hear that at all. His mouth is moving very fast. Yeah. No words are coming out. Wow. Ah, I see. You're actually like duplicated even. It's funny. There's not it's not just <laughs> you're echoed yeah, now. Yeah, it's yeah. great. I'll just I'll load it again. Load again. <laughs> this is gonna be a nightmare to edit later. <laughs> this demonstrates the challenges with Riverside, which is software as a service. Oops, there he goes. Riverside is indeed software as a service, which is the thing that we're using to, we go the to, to the Riverside. I don't think this is Riverside's fault. I think this is the 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 saga of Jason's browser, which yeah, he's behaved. He's had browser problems like this before. Forever. Forever, yeah. So, <laughs> For the first time in forever, his browser uh, effed him up the butt. It has, it has been first... a while, though. It has been a while since he's had trouble like this. Yeah, Jay so. Scar is going to send one of his extra Raspberry Pis to Jason. Yeah, right. There you, you are there? taking my name in vain again. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. Scar says he's going to send you a Raspberry Pi because it'll work better than your MacBook. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure he will. Like, you can get Raspberry Pis now. No, no, you don't understand. He has 128 of them in his, like, under his chair right now. They're his children. They're okay, heating so up need, his basement for him. Um, I need I need, I need, need five CM32s. Or CM, CM3 slash 32 pluses. I don't think he has any compute modules. He's got Raspberry Pis, man. Not the fancy shit. I... I can get them, but five compute modules right now would cost me $1,500. He says he has 45 of them and counting. Are those compute modules, Jscar? Because if they are, you you got a client. Anyway. (laughs) All right. um, Let's see. Okay. Uh, So that that covers the as-a-services. Now we're going to talk about some of the, basically, components that you can utilize. A lot of these are... We're kind of going to go all over the place, right? Most of these are pieces you're going to talk about when you're talking about uh, infrastructure as a service. Um, But there are some of these that apply to the other levels as well. Software as a service is one of those things that you don't generally get a lot of control over. Uh, Platform as a service, you can have some control. And some of these things apply to those as well. Or at least some of these technologies apply. Maybe they have different names. Um, All right, so first we're going to talk about... what. This, this is where that gray area comes in because you, you have things like ServiceNow that we would consider a, I would, I would almost consider that software as a service, yeah. but there's pluggable modules and you can, like, there's a ton of configuration. Um, the same yeah. with, uh, uh, I, there's a lot of them. I, I mean, Office 365 is sort of the same, like where, yes, it's software as a service, but on the admin side, there's, there's a ton of configuration that can so be done. So much. Right. So um, I have these broken up into like generalizations, right? So compute terminology. Instance. One of you guys want to tell me what's an instance? Do you know what an instance is? It's an instance of something. Um, in, in in my brain, it's like an EC2 instance, but that applies to lots of things, yeah, right? It's, like it could be... it's, it's, it, it's a VM, basically. Yeah. I mean, it, in, in the parlance of, of most public clouds, an instance is a, is a virtual machine. It's specifically generate it so so it's beyond just a virtual machine in a lot of ways right yeah what what 
what makes an instance special is it's generally something generated from a template. Right. Uh, and then if you need another copy of it, you, the you fire off another copy and you, you get to define certain unique things about it, like its name. Oh, yeah. We, the Breaking Bad episode where he's like, say my name. That was on tonight. My wife and I are watching through it again. <laughs> Heisenberg. You're damn right. Anyway, but yeah, but but so the instance is not it's not like an empty shell that you then install Linux from a DVD on it. Right. It's generated from a template. Right. I would argue that there, the term instance is used for lots of things, whether they are sure a platform as a service or a infrastructure as a service to describe a thing that can be automatically generated when you click a button. Right. So some people say uh, when you start your own group in in Discord. They call that an instance. A lot of people say it's a server. They, oh, it's join my Discord server. It's really more like an instance. Um, World of Warcraft or MMOs, right? You go into a dungeon that a new version of that dungeon is spun up for you and your group. That's an instance, right? Absolutely. Same concept. And just, it's, a te- it's a templated copy. Right, it's exactly. Like, it's like you tear, the, you tear the piece of paper off the, off the pad and there's, right. your, there's your fresh copy. Here it is, right, yeah. All right, Whoop, so there it is. Whoop, and then there it is. Then we go to something very similar but different, a container. Right? So a container I just did a talk last night at Defcon 610 about containers and how they work and It's a process with an attitude. Yeah, right. So a container is like a VM but totally not. <laughs> uh, a container is um well, it's 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 contexts and a file system uh, that all contain a process, right? Which is kind of what Mark was getting at with a process with an attitude, right? Um, that goes a little deeper than maybe some people care about, but just, I guess, a container is a predefined image that you can spin up and run things in, right? Uh, or the, the image itself may be configured to run a thing, right? So you can have a container that runs an entire service that you've defined and you've stored in a registry somewhere. The point is it's not an operating system that's running and that you can interact with like you would traditionally with a Linux or a Windows or whatever operating system. It's a purpose-built uh, image that runs a thing and does a specific task, right? So it's it shares some of the similarities that you might define with an instance, but uh, it's purpose-built and not general purpose, if you know what I mean. That mm. that makes sense. Did I did I just ramble too much there and really not cover it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest. I think we're trying. I, I don't know if container belongs on this list. You think? I think I I I, I love you, Nate, but I feel like you're trying to force it in there. Well, then uh, because a, a container a contain that a container is not necessarily a cloud based thing. Well, it's a component that is commonly leveraged with cloud. Which is why I, yeah. which is why I've included it. Okay, I'm just I'm just saying I. That's how it feels a little bit. I I, I don't know to, and and. It generally can't stand on its own in most cloud services, from what I've seen. Like, can you can you spit up? Can you like take a container and run it on Amazon? Well, so that's Without. that's kind of my point, right? So most cloud providers will have infrastructure that will run containers in the same way that they have infrastructure that will run an instance, right? Which is, in my right. mind, why it's a similar technology. 
So I'm going to just Google run naked container on AWS. Naked containers. That sounds terrible. Uh, yeah, well, that's what I would like. Container orchestration oh, and management. There's, um, there's totally there's, 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 ECS, isn't there's it? There's ECS. Oh. Yep. E ECS oh, yeah. is the uh, elastic container, whatever. Service? Uh, service. ECS anywhere. Submarine? Yep. And then there's then there's uh, EKS, which is the elastic Kubernetes service, which also yep. runs containers. And, okay. and there's variants of that with this thing called Fargate, which is uh, uh, basically the sort of but, network. Yeah, side of things. You, you do have to do the whole cluster thing. I mean, it's it, it's yeah. like yeah. if I just was going to set up a Valheim container, it would be so overkill. Oh, absolutely. It'd be, it, it would be expensive because yeah. if you run ECS uh, to run a container, you have to pay for the compute of the system in yeah. addition to the, the management of the containers themselves. Yeah, I, I looked into so, this So you're once. paying for the machines. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's not it's not a cheaper solution. I thought it would be, it's not. Yeah, I mean, I'm willing, <laughs> I'm willing to be, I'm willing to be wrong with my assessment about whether container belongs in this list or not, and I don't want to drag us along too far. You're wrong, I could very, I could very well be wrong. Okay. <laughs> my, my, All right. my understanding is that you can run native containers in GCP much yeah. easier because that they're, they're their entire system is basically contained. Even their virtualization is is just containers in the yeah. on the back end. So, yeah. so I, I, my understand like I've never really tried it, but my understanding is that if you're pure containers and you want it want it quote easy, you can go to Google and, and do it there. Okay. Cool. All right, uh, Jason, did you put serverless in here? I know you were really interested in serverless at one point. Yeah, kind of serverless. I, I I put it in there because it's it's it, it sort of falls into. I mean, the argument is that it's the next the next generation. You know, you've got instances, which are basically VMs. You've got containers, which are, well, they're containers. And then you've got this thing called serverless, which is, you know, you just run your code without a server, which is bullshit. Um, but uh, yeah, it needs it, a server it, somewhere. Yeah, there's there's a <laughs> server. So so all serverless is on every every system that I've ever seen so far. It it's a container. Yeah, pretty it's, much. It's actually a container. Yeah. So, but what you're doing is instead of instead of supplying an image or supplying, you know, the container itself, you supply the code. You just go into their code editor, you dump the code in, tell it what language the code is running in, and serverless will run that. So it, it just spins up a a Go container or a Python container and runs. And that if code you're for you. if you're a coder, there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you have no clue no, about yeah, how no, to do not. any of the OS what, type stuff. The, what yeah. you have to keep in mind is that serverless is is extremely um, short lived, right? So you can run servers and containers for years. You can run serverless for minutes. Yeah, yeah, but which that might it, be appropriate for your application. It makes it much more right. cost effective, right? It runs a thing, it does a function, and then spits right. out the result and turns itself off, right? Yes. Um, so the the the, the I guess one of the better examples of using serverless, at least to me, is is you're using it for APIs. Yeah. So if yeah. you if you, you you know each each API function is a serverless, uh, you know a lambda is is basically what instance. they are on AWS. But sir, yeah, serverless instance is is what you do. So if you have a you know get data from the whatever you have a you've written code specifically that's all it does, and you attach that to um, an API what's called an API gateway. Uh, and that API gateway is nothing more than just a, a, a fancy, uh, it's sort of a fancy Nginx setup that just puts the routes in there for you. So yeah. whenever slash get data is called, it passes 
that over to the get data function, which a uh, serverless function, which then goes out to get the data from, say, uh, a, a database instance or something on the back end that's running all the time. That way you don't need a server running 24-7 when you right. only get hit, you know, 10 times a minute or, you know, 100 times a minute. And it, it's extremely cost effective to do that. If, if like the whole application is written that way. Yeah. Yeah, but even even in instances where, you know, you do need to have a system that's processing things in the back end, you, you keep all of your non-user facing stuff on the back end in instances and containers and reduce your cost and then yeah. let things like load balancers, API gateways and serverless, you know, lambdas take care of your front end to serve all of that to your customers. Yeah, the the real the only real problem I saw with this at least when I looked into it, which is a couple years ago, admittedly, this may have changed in the past couple years, um, is that it always, every implementation of quote-unquote serverless seemed very cloud provider specific, right? So if you're using Vanderlock, Lambda, right, if you're using Lambda, for example, it felt like it would be difficult to move to a different cloud provider and at the time impossible to move in-house, right? Because there wasn't a quote-unquote serverless uh, that you could run in-house. Now, that's that's changing. I think uh, there's work being done to make uh, serverless functionality in OpenShift, which theoretically would mean it could be in Kubernetes, or maybe it's the other way around. Um, but I, again, I don't know how compatible that would be with, oh, I've developed an application that runs on AWS using serverless versus I want to move that to Azure or I'm going to move that to Shift or whatever, right? So... Uh, that's just like a word to the wise. If if you start heavily leveraging serverless, you may end up locking yourself into a cloud provider. And and the the containers that run that serverless code from mm -hmm. and I know for AWS, but the the containers that run that serverless code, AWS has those available in a registry to the public so that you can download them and test your serverless code. Uh, you could just run them on your own machine; it'll work. Is it that so, easy? So you know it's. It is, it is, yeah, it's stupidly simple. So the, the, the secret sauce in AWS is the fact that they can get these to spin up incredibly fast. Yeah. Um, like in milliseconds, spin up time. To, yeah, right. Because if, to, if to, the, and scale. If yeah. the function to get data from your database adds a couple milliseconds every time you call it just to spin it up, that adds up over time. Right. 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 But if you're, if you're in your own private cloud, Honestly, um, you know, why are you looking at serverless? You own the machines. They're going to run 24-7 whether you want them to or not. Because you don't, there's no turn a machine on. I mean, I guess it, you could if you wanted to, but that's kind of goofy. There could still be benefits to better utilizing the hardware you own, right? So, you know, having that big honking monolith of an application up and running 24-7 <sighs> when it has peak times and valley times right it's probably better if you could spin pieces of it down but you can't do that when it's a big monolith because it's all running in one big code base right but if you have it broken oh, up yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm not, I'm not pieces, saying you know yeah, you could you I, could possibly not, save power let, let alone compute resources and, and memory and yeah, cpu I, and all I, that stuff I, again you'd have to be shutting machines off but i mean you you, you well no you can right still so do an, that an, with microservices an idle machine by today's standards uses less power than a fully loaded fair. machine right so even if you're not yeah, turning yeah, it off fair. you're still saving electricity especially if you've got thousands of machines right 
So, but but mm. you know, if you build it, if you build a proper microservice architecture, um, you know, serverless, in my opinion, doesn't really come into it. You know, right. it, uh, it it really makes more sense in in cloud providers where you're charged, like when when the when there's money on the line and you charge for these things, serverless sort of makes sense in a in a public cloud. But on right. a, on a private cloud. Just I would just microservice it, containers, proper scaling, and and you'll be fine. Right. All right. Uh, the next uh, grouping here is network terminologies. Um, I only put two in here. Mar or uh, Jason, you may have a bunch more because I know you're a lot deeper into the networking side of this stuff than I ever have been. Uh, one would be a load balancer, and this this isn't cloud specific, right? Uh, on prem, you'd have something like you know an F five load balancer that load balances things. In a cloud provider, that's generally just software defined, right? Now, maybe they've got something like an F5 in the background, but you can just click some buttons. You get a load balancer. You don't care what's backing it. Uh, and usually what that load balancer will do is point to services that are called uh, from within your cloud provider, right? So you, you'd say, my load balancer is here. Um, this microservice over there is on is is behind this load balancer. So when you call it, it goes over to the that particular microservice. Or, you know, this big honking web application that runs in this big monolithic instance of a uh, EC2 instance, right? And that's that's essentially what those are what those uh, get done. And, of course, it can have several endpoints behind it so that it will balance the load across several of them, right? So that's exactly what a load balancer is for. Um, Jason is feverishly adding uh, terms that I don't even know that... Yeah, I guess I know these terms. Uh, all right, the next one would be a floating IP. Now... This term, when I first started poking around at cloud, I'm like, what the hell is a floating IP? Does it move around on me? No. Yes, but no. Uh, a floating IP is basically uh, an IP reservation where you say, this is the IP address of, say, a service, for example. And then that IP can be attached to many different, uh, several different things, not at once, of course. But, you know, if you've got an application on this particular IP address, and you've got an EC2 instance, for example, behind it, you reach it through the IP, you get to the EC2 instance. The EC2 instance will have its own IP address, but it could change simply by spinning it down and back up again or by spinning up a new one, right? And the whole idea of cloud is that you don't have to treat your instances as handcrafted things. They should be spun up and easy to destroy and rebuild, right? So the floating IP gives you a static endpoint, sort of like the load balancer could do, uh, that you can then get to your application with. Right. So if you spin down that instance and spin up a new one that's running the same application, the floating IP points to the new one and no one knows that the back end service ever changed. So that's essentially that's what a floating yeah. IP your, is. Your your machines in in uh, uh, I know in AWS and Azure um, and probably in Google as well. But um, your any any instances you spin up are using private RFC 1918 space. They, they don't have public IPs by default. You, you can right. set them by default on some of them, but then those are static public IPs, which means that it's it's directly attached to that instance and you can't move it. Once you spin that instance down, that it's a pool of a pool of IPs. And when you spin the instance back up again, those public and private IPs, they, they're they're random. So like I said, it's a pool. Right. So your your virtual IPs or your your floating IPs or you know whatever whatever term you want to use for it are public facing static IP addresses that you can attach or, or point to a specific instance. Right. You know, just so like you, you said, it's, it's so that, 
Yep. You know, you, you'd set yeah. up your DNS to point to this IP, and then you'd point this IP at whatever, wherever the live right. backend service is running. Right. Yeah, and some of the some of the services, I think you can do this in Azure. I know you can do it in AWS. Um, there's DNS trickery that you can use uh, with aliases. Trixie Hobbitses. Where it, um, I can I can speculate on how they do it on the back end. I don't know for certain, but um, basically you create a DNS record for, you know, mycoolthing.com and you tell it to alias that to a service or an instance or, you know, any. there's a whole list of things that you can alias that to in AWS. And then automatically, if the IP is on that, on that instance or on that whatever service you're pointing it at change, it'll fix DNS for you. So you never actually have to know what that is. Not not really good to use for things like uh, like EC2 instances. Um, great for load balancers because load balancers come with um, you know they come with like really long, hard to remember uh, uh, names. Um, and the the when you alias it, I mean to me it looks just like a C name, but when you alias it, it comes through and gives you a, a, a usable name. All right, and you added a bunch here. So virtual network, I could probably take a stab at this, but you may as well just go ahead and tell us what a virtual yeah, network is. Yeah, so, I mean, a virtual network is exactly what it sounds like. It's a virtual network. So um, you, you you need a place to put your instances or to put your databases or, you know, whatever your, whatever whatever infrastructure you're running runs on a network. So the virtual network part of it is setting up your, your network, setting up your subnets, your routing, um, all, all the bits and bobs that go in with networking. Um, you've got security groups and, and network uh, uh, ACLs that you can put on them for security, that sort of stuff. Um, and then your when you when you build an instance um, or spin up a container or run a serverless, you know whatever, you're going to tell it you're going to be on this network. Um, this way you can keep things segmented, and you can have internal networks, you can have external networks, you know, um, sort of the same way that you would do on in, in on like a on-prem uh, network. Right. Uh, then we've network got... Isolation. So so I, yep. I want to skip ahead for just, just one point, just because you mentioned security groups, but you also have firewall in the list here. Is there a difference between a firewall and a security group? Yes. Okay. So uh, it, it depends on the service, but um, so a security group is, is your traditional... Uh, ACL that you'll have on like a Cisco router. Um, it's it's a, a stateful. It's it's essentially a stateful firewall, but it's it's layer three, um, typically. So you can allow in on IPs, and it'll automatically you know do the reverse for you. So if you if you say you can come in, the outbound traffic will be allowed to that same IP that started the connection, and vice versa. Um, but it's but it's very low level layer three stateful IP type firewall. Um, network ACLs are similar, but they're not stateful. So network ACLs are, if it's not in the, if it's not in the ACL, the traffic doesn't flow. So they're, they're good for opening up, uh, they're good for saying large swaths of known addresses. So, uh, you know, I'm allowing this internal network to this internal network and you put it as a network ACL. And that will catch everything else. And then you can use your security groups just to fine tune different connectivity. Um, the thing then you've got things like WAF. Yep. WAF is a web application firewall, which is a, uh, it's, it's a layer. 
it's a layer seven firewall specifically tuned for web stuff. Um, so th these exist in a lot of different flavors. Um, the cloud providers generally suck at this. Uh, it's like the lowest common denominator WAF that you can get. Oh dear. So Amazon's, uh, AWS WAF, for instance, um, yes, you have a WAF instance. Congratulations. Go write all your own rules. So you, you basically have to like tune, like spin up a rule set for it. Um, the last I heard, I haven't dug into it recently, but the last I heard Azure's WAF was, and they may have improved this. I hope they have, cause it sucked. Uh, Azure's WAF was in a Windows server running IIS and mod security, which is, you know, <laughs> mod security is great, but, you know, it's, it's, I mean, again, lowest, it's like the lowest cost thing they could spin up and say, we have a WAF, off we you go. A WAF and I have now. no idea what yeah, Google yeah. does. I feel like we're going to um, have to just follow up episode where we describe the OSI model because you, you're talking yeah. all about the different layers. And I'm wondering yep. if people so, are getting all that. <laughs> So layer seven is just like the the, the application that you see yeah. at the end, yeah. um, and 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 what it, what it means by layer seven is that it understands um, it under it understands how the application is supposed to work and what data can be sent and received from it. Um, that way, you can write rules that say you know if uh, you know this sort of behavior is not allowed. Right. Um, and when we're talking web application firewalls, that application is not the website that you're running. It's the web server or like the web server so it's yeah it understands yeah, it's the web server web protocol it, under it understands yeah yeah it understands http basically yeah yeah um then you've got a regular firewall uh i haven't played with these a whole lot but i know that they're they they can do a bit more than a web application firewall can so it'll do some layer seven stuff so it does other protocols basically um interconnects which sort of fits in with the virtual network um you can connect between multiple uh uh not between cloud well you can do between clouds too different ways but um like in internal to aws you can connect between multiple different virtual networks you can connect between accounts you can connect between you know your aw your aws network and your on-prem network um so there's a lot of different interconnects that you can do there and then uh vpns which is just it's vpn as a service essentially um, which is sometimes useful and sometimes not. So you can you can basically create an IPsec VPN, um, but it, it limits, there's there's limitations to how much configuration you can do there. Sometimes it's better to just like spin up your own VPN um, or spin up a router, a router instance, um, uh, and, and then just use that router to spin up whatever kind of VPN you want. But th there's, again, there's, there's limitations. So if you use the, the specifically designed VPN service, like AWS is the one I know best, but if you use AWS's VPN instance, when you connect your networks, the routing between where you're connecting and AWS will automatically pick up the IP addresses. You can set up things like BGP to do like a, as a routing protocol. You do all sorts of advanced stuff. If you're spinning up your own instance inside of a, like an EC2 uh, instance, you're you're more limited on what you can do. Generally speaking, you can kind of only talk between whatever you're connected to and the local um, the local subnet that that router's on. There's there's lots of tricks to get around that, but you know it's it's a little bit harder to 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 get things up and running. But it can be more flexible if you need it to be. So there's 
there's tons and tons and tons of different types of network functionality you can do on these. Um, and there's a whole bunch more that either I haven't touched or, or isn't worth getting into because it's just, there's like esoteric cases where you would use it. Satellites come as an instance, you know, satellite networking is a thing. And you can do that with some of the cloud providers. Yeah, I remember when I was at reInvent back in 2018, they announced, hey, we have satellites now. And I'm like, satellite? Like space satellites? That's awesome. Scary, but awesome. <laughs> and I just want to say, Jason, I'm impressed. Not because you knew all that stuff about networking, because I knew you knew all that stuff about networking, but your voice but has not my microphone? gone south yeah, okay. the entire time you went You were not betrayed. <laughs> your browser has not betrayed you. <laughs> I, I wish I knew what was causing it, what the trigger was, but it like I wasn't doing anything. Triggered. It seemed like when you came off mute, like when you muted yourself for a long enough time and came back from mute, it was messed yeah, up. Yeah, so just don't so mute. Yeah. Don't mute. I mean, Hold your breath. Well, I, I, could, I could do that. I could not mute. And then if I make the slightest noise or my air I'll conditioner complain. kicks in, you yeah. know, like then I just get, I catch hell from you guys anyway. So, yeah. you know. No, yeah. you won't catch hell from me. You'll catch hell from me. <laughs> And, and my dogs, dogs are crazy. starting their. I hear dogs. <laughs> they're they're starting their normal. Oh, it's eight o'clock. Bullshit. Okay. So well, yeah. All right. Anyway, um, I got two more uh, sort of sections here. Hopefully, they're not going to take too much longer. We've we've been at this, uh, I guess, just about an hour, uh, given that we started just a little bit late. So we're going to try to get through them quick. The next segment here is storage terminology. And there's a number of things we could probably go pretty deeply into, but I don't know if we have to. The first of which is block storage. And the best way I can, the best way I can simplify this is block storage is like a hard drive. It's like a thing you plug in that gives you raw blocks, right? Which is exactly what a USB stick would be or a hard drive you've plugged in or a physical disk, right? Blocks. You can lay down a file system on that and you have a storage device connected to your machine. Um, that's great for if you just need to store things. But as soon as you need access to that outside of that machine, it has all the same limitations that a hard drive would in that it's not network accessible unless you run a service that makes it network accessible. The uh, Through the instance that it's attached to, right. let us be clear about that. Right. So like I have a Linux machine with a block store connected to it. If I want to make that accessible to other machines... Uh, generally the way I would do that is like an NFS server running on my Linux box, which is not a great way to do this stuff in the cloud because there's, there's built-in yeah, technologies that wasting, will give you the same. Right, you're, you're wasting You're wasting money, resources. Essentially is what you're doing. Um, further down in the list, I talk about a filer or file storage. That's pretty much exactly what you've built in the cloud instead of just utilizing what the cloud provider already gives you. You can get a filer service or a networked file system directly from the cloud provider that works just like NFS, right? So don't build your own NFS box in the cloud. Utilize the one that's there. It'll generally be cheaper. Um, but I skipped ahead. The next on the list is object storage. Now, object storage is like at a very high level, it's storage, just like the block store is. Uh, what it's not is directly attached to your instance, right? Um, what object storage is... Hang on a second here. I have to. It's buckets. There was they, a thing. They, yeah. They're called, it's like a big bucket. It's right. like when you tell your kids to pick up the family room and every single friggin' toy just gets thrown into the chest. Yeah. That's, that's an, that's object, an object store. store. Uh, it, so, it, seriously, it's just what? all the shit dumped in a box, not indexed in any way. Right. And you can pull it back out of the box. So the, 
the block storage also has the limitation that a physical hard drive would in storage, right? An object store or an object storage does not have that limitation, right? You can keep throwing stuff into that object store and they'll just keep giving you more space and happily charging you for that more space. So if you have like three gig or three gigabytes of stuff to store, um, you put in three gig, it costs you almost nothing, right? If you bought a hundred terabyte block store and put three gig on it, you're still paying for the hundred terabyte block store. Object storage, you pay for what you're using, right? But it's also accessible from other systems, right? So if I have a dozen systems in AWS, they all talk to the same object store. Uh, they can all read the same files from the same object store. And it's accessible over a web API, right? That's pretty much the way to get to it. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it's it. The I don't API think there's any other way. There's, there, any, any way you talk to a block store, it's over this API call. Um, so object that, store. Sorry, did I say block store? I meant object store. You did. Uh, is through this through through an API, and that means that you can access it from anywhere. Granted, you have an access key set up for it, right? Now you need to be careful because you can also make object stores public. Which is great if you want to like run a little simple static website, which is a really cheap way to run Oops. a static website on uh, on AWS. You put it inside of an object store, and then you make it public, and people can access the site, right? And there it is, right? It's like hosted. Um, but as soon as it's dynamic, then that all falls apart. But if you're putting sensitive data in there, you do not want it public because people can just go in and take your data, which was the subject of a whole lot of breaches about, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And it probably still happens today. It's just a lot a lot more eyes on that. It used to be the default, you, you, if I remember. What? You, you, you mispronounced nudes. You called it sensitive data. <laughs> That's valid. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, don't put your nudes on a public block store, uh, object store. Keep doing that. Block storage. Anyway. So yeah, object storage, it's a great cheaper way to store stuff as long as you're careful with the access rights you have in and your application can support it, right? So you can't just like take your little web application and say, instead of using a block store, I'm going to use an object store. It has to be written to talk to that API, right? Otherwise, it's not going to know how to talk, how to get the data out. Uh, then there's, on the subject of object storage, there's commonly tiered storage. Uh, there's hot storage. Yep, it makes you cry. There's hot storage and cold storage, right? So you've heard of um, S3 Glacier or Amazon Glacier. That's meant to be cold storage, like long-term storage. You put a bunch of data in there. They don't cost, they don't charge you much to store it, but they will like have you cut your arm off if you want to take the data back out again later. It's great for like backups that you don't need frequently or if you have like a big archive you need to save or, you know, whatever, like, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Storage for like, um, legal proceedings and whatever, where you need to keep the data for seven, eight, 10 years, but you don't, you probably aren't ever going to have to take it out of there. Uh, that's a great thing to use, uh, something like Glacier for cold storage. Hot storage, on the other hand, is the stuff you're going to use all the time. That charge, that costs you more, um, for the storage, but there's no penalty for accessing it, right? Where there would be with cold storage. Uh, so that's the trade-off there. there there's 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 another trade-off. Um, hot storage is instant access. Cold storage can right. literally take hours to access. Mm -hmm. So so you you have to you basically put in a request to get access to the store the cold storage, and then you wait until they say yeah it's ready. Right, right. Which again would normally be fine as long as you're putting the right type of stuff in there. 
if it's truly archival data that is that you're not going to need it at a moment's notice. You don't want to put last week's backup in there because tomorrow your server could crash and to get your backup back out might take hours and it might cost you an arm and a leg, right? But backups from three years ago that you have to hold on to for legal reasons, fine. That's a great thing to put in there. <laughs> All right, um, let's see. We talked about filer, uh, disk image. This is what we were talking about earlier when Jason was talking about instances, and in a way, it's kind of also applicable to containers. But a disk image is basically you create like a golden image of the operating system that you're going to run on your cloud provider or your your private cloud, and that's what your new instances are based from, right? So I have, say, I've got a rel box that's my base image, and I like to put this particular these particular accounts on it, or I like to have these particular services configured to run out of the box. Um, I like to have this particular security policy applied. I build all that into my disk image, and I said that to the cloud provider, and then I say, you know, when I build a new rail box, base it on this image, and then all that stuff comes along with it, right? So that's what I mean by a disk image. Um, all right, uh, the last section here is interfaces, and we've kind of touched on a lot of these already. Um, there's an API, which is basically a programmatic way of interacting with your cloud provider, application programming interface. The term API is not cloud specific. This has been something that I've been learning about ever since I was like way back in college. Um, lots mm -hmm. of applications use an API to talk to, talk internally to themselves or to other applications that are made to work with them. Um, in this context, they're usually what we call web APIs, which are an API that's accessible via the web, right? Just like that object store we were talking about earlier. You can also talk to your cloud provider and have it provision things, build new networks, build new instances, build new whatever, Lambda things. Um, so that's essentially the way a lot of developers will talk to a cloud provider so that they can make things automatic. Uh, then there's the web-based console, which is essentially the same concept as the API, except it's for meaty fingers and eyeballs and brains to uh, interact with instead of programs. Right, so this is just what it sounds like. It's the thing you log into. Sorry, cloud management portal is what I meant to say there. Web console is slightly different. Uh, cloud management portal is like you log into and you say, I'm gonna click these buttons to make a instance. I'm gonna click these buttons to define some new DNS. I'm gonna click these buttons to make a new load balancer, right? Um, so that's basically to carry out the same tasks you might have with, might have with the cloud API, but in a more manual fashion. Web-based console, what I meant to say for that was this is, you know, I have an instance or something that has a console to it that normally I would go plug a keyboard and mouse into to see the output on that console. A web-based console is that, except it's given to you in a web browser because you can't go to your cloud provider's data center and plug in a keyboard and a mouse. Um, so that's, that's what that's all about. Uh, and then, of course... One of you added CLI tools. Yes, most cloud providers will have a CLI tool that you can run on Linux or Windows or Mac that will basically translate whatever command you're typing to an API call and send it to the cloud provider, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a human interactable way to talk to the APIs from a command line. You could, you know, then script that data or script that instead of having to make direct API calls, that sort of thing. Is there anything else you want to say about that, whoever typed it? Did I cover that well enough? That would have been Jason. No, that was me. It's just, it's, it's the, the command line jockey likes the CLI stuff yeah. just yeah. so that we can do it quicker. Yeah. And in some cases, the command line tools are essentially your API, 
right? If you want to write a bash script that spins yeah. up new machines, that's your API, right? It runs commands yeah, it, with arguments and whatnot. Yeah, and and uh, you'll see often that the the command makeup on the tool, so like on AWS or Azure's tool, like if you want to spin up an EC2 instance, you'll have to call the EC2 API. So you'll tell it, you know, AWS space EC2 space, run this command, and right. that command name happens to be the API command. It's just it's building all the API stuff in the back end. You're just telling it which commands to use. So right. it's actually a really good tool if you want to learn the API by doing so that you can sort of understand what's happening um, before you go write a big long program to do something. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the nice thing that that also does is uh, finding out the API endpoints sometimes means you're pouring, pouring over, over documentation to find out what these endpoints are. Sometimes it's not obvious where you need to point these API calls at. And what I mean by an API endpoint is literally the web URL that you point your commands at where you send your put to, right? If you're doing a, a direct API command, um, that's not always obvious. Like for example, we talked a lot about object storage. When you create a bucket, it'll tell you right in the bucket, here's the API endpoint that you would use. And, you know, like, so you make an access token and that's another thing we didn't talk about an access token. That's a programmatic way to give a program access to your cloud stuff. You know, you can link it up to anything. I, I recently was doing this with a, a bucket, so that's fresh in my brain, but you basically make an API token and say, it has access to this bucket. It's got read or write or both. And then, um, you know, you have the API endpoint, the access token, and then you have to have software or write your own software that can take all that and actually pass it along, right? Whereas this CLI tools have all that functionality built in. You give it an access token and it knows everything else it needs to know. And that's the end of the list. We got through a long list in record time. <laughs> record time for Iron Sism in podcast anyway. Mm. <laughs> Any final thoughts on cloud stuff? And I hope to make this a little bit of a series. Like it may not be the next episode we're talking about more cloud stuff, but I think over time we're going to touch on more and more cloud topics. Um, and this was meant to be like an introductory to the, like a begin, a start point yeah. for that. So. so I guess the reality is that if you're a system administrator, if you're going to swim in that, in that ocean today, there's a really good chance that you will have to be, you'll either want to, or you'll be forced to deal with these various types of technologies. Uh, you know, at at every company I've been at in recent years, it's always been a mix of of our own hardware with our internal apps, sometimes running on it or third party apps, plus mostly software as a service, and then some of the stuff in the middle there ha starts filling in as well. You know, right. Uh, So at, at the college, we went from 100% on-prem to sort of a blend of cloud and on-prem pre, I mean, it might be 15 years ago, where the first software-as-a-service stuff started coming in. And that's, it was a very slow progression there, but a lot of places, it's not so slow, right? <clears throat> Somebody spins up an EC2 instance, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, and they say, I don't need to wait for IT anymore. So the way to get a handle on that is to have an official uh, program 
that your IT folks control, right? So that if someone needs an EC2 instance or whatever, something provided by a cloud provider, they have a path to get through the IT people, through all the controls and checks that your IT people want to have on things like this, not just because they're control freaks, but because there's security policy that has to be followed, right? Uh, if you just fold your arms and say, nope, no cloud, your users are going to use it anyway. Because <laughs> it's too easy. It's just too easy. You plug in your credit card, you try to get it expensed later. If you don't get it expensed, you know, whatever, it was it was 28 cents for the month or, you know, it's not that low, but you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, you should embrace it. Or you should have policies that say, no, you cannot because of these reasons uh, that you can fall back on. Because then if employees or users do use cloud providers, you have a policy that says, no, 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 you can't do that. And you can either be terminated or reprimanded for that, um, you know, if you need to go that route. Because there are, there are industries that still will not use cloud providers because the data they're working with is just that sensitive. That list is getting shorter and shorter as time goes on because cloud providers have... Uh, legal protections that say, no, no, your data is totally safe here. Until it's not, I suppose, but... <laughs> mm. But uh, anyway. All right, so um, folks that are listening, if you have any specific cloud topics you want us to try to cover, let us know. We'd love to hear some feedback. If you think we missed some pieces, let us know. You know, we'd love to cover them in the future. Um, if it's a place you'd like to see this conversation go again, let us know, reach out to us through discord or on Twitter, or, uh, you can even email us if you really want to just go to ironsysadmin.com. You can find all the ways to contact us. Any final thoughts on cloud stuff, you guys? Cloudy McCloud stuff. Cloudy Not really. Cloudy Kins. <laughs> no. All right, no. folks. We're going to go to a break. This concludes part A of the show. We're going to go back to a split show. Um, if you don't listen to part B, then, I mean, bully on you, whatever. We don't like you anymore. No, we actually, we do. Uh, anyway, if, uh, if you don't listen to the second half of the show, then just know that you can find us live on both YouTube and Twitch on the second and fourth Thursday of every month. Um, you can check out ironsystemin.com to find all the ways to contact us. You can join our Discord. And if you want to support the show, you can do so via Patreon. This is all important stuff that I need to tell you guys um, before we go to a break. And now, I think we're going to go to a break. So folks that are watching live, we will catch you in a few. Um, let me just find the button here. You know, the, the push the button. Push the button, Frank. All right, folks, we'll see you in a few.